This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, this morning, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in what could become a landmark case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Now, the specific legal issue at hand is whether a state, Mississippi, may ban abortions before the so-called viability cutoff date that was established so many years ago in Roe v. Wade. Uh, Many people believe that this case could and probably will lead to Roe v. Wade being overturned, especially since conservative justices hold a majority on the bench. So you you went through some of the arguments this morning. Can you walk us through uh, the the arguments and the justices' reactions uh, to 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 uh, what was what was said? Were there any novel arguments? Were there were there misguided ones? Were there surprising reactions from any of the justices? Well, I, I think the answer is there's an extraordinary diversity of opinion on both sides of this issue, and that people landed far and wide. It was a long argument. It was kind of convoluted. Uh, you had both the Jacksons, the clinic on the one hand, and also the Solicitor General weighing in on that side. And you had the Stalwarts Mississippi Solicitor General, Mr. Stewart, uh, trying to give as good as he got. So I'm going to go back and to set the stage, I'm going to go back and talk a little bit about what was the grounds on which Roe v. Wade was decided and what were the grounds of the criticism for it. Well, the first of the situation was that you had to find some kind of a link to the Constitution that would allow you to do this. And I've just happened to reread Harry Blackman's opinion this morning because I'm teaching the case tomorrow morning. And, and the man is all of a dither. And so at one point, he starts to talk about the uh, Ninth Amendment, which uh, protects rights retained by the people under a natural law theory. Uh, the difficulty with that is if you go back to natural law theory, you will find that it contains obligations of parents to take care of their children. And you can easily read that to say they have to do it both before birth and after birth. You could certainly develop a theory which says, for example, if a woman refuses to take care of her own health and damages a a fetus before it is born, that could easily be treated as a case of neglect. Uh, So by and large, if you start going back to all of this kind of complicated histories, um, you just don't exactly know where it is that the rights retained by the people lead you to do. Uh, the other thing that one then starts to do is to go to the due process clause, which says, nor shall life, liberty, or property be taken without due process of law. There's a kind of long and complicated history on this, which takes multiple dimensions. The first is a position most associated with John Hart Ely, writing in 1980 in a book called Democracy and Distrust, where he said that the substantive due process is like a contradiction in term green pastel yellowness, or some such phrase he famously used. And when Ely wrote a very influential article early on about Roe v. Wade, what he did is not make any moral arguments. What he did is he said, I think the institutional capacities of a court to deal with these kinds of questions in a principled way is not available. So it ought to be left to legislative interventions and decision because it's just something we cannot do to deal with those issues. At the same time, I wrote an article, the title of which was given to me by Phil Kerwin, which did not represent the thesis of the article. So the title was Substantive Due Process by Any Other Name. And the point that Kerwin made is if you look back to the historical decision of Lochner against New York, generally amongst liberal circles, one of the most reviled cases who came down, 
an opinion which, for example, the chief justice takes heartily takes hearty disagreements with. But that said, in effect, is that the liberty of contract meant that it was not consistent with substance of due process to take maximum hour limitations on a way in which a worker could work. And the great New Deal revolution took the position that getting rid of Latin and allowing the state to make a hours and wage regulations, leading, for example, to the Fair Labor Standard Act, was one of the signal achievements of the New Deal. Now what happens in an area that's much more complicated, people are invoking the once discredited substantive due process doctrine in order to deal with a highly controversial issue of abortion. Because if you look back to Lochner, that was a case in which there was a novel statutory intervention which was being attacked by the uh, bakers in those cases and their employers in a criminal proceeding, no less. Whereas when you're starting to talk about the abortion situation, uh, there had been an unbroken history going well back before 1868 in which state after state had adopted various rules for abortion. Some may not have, but I don't think there was any doubt by anybody at any time that the state could impose these things in the name of health and safety under the police power of the United States a doctrine of the police power, which was explicitly endorsed and recognized in Lochner itself. Uh, so what you do is you have a situation where you now are uh, basically by statute overriding a long constitutional tradition. And what happens is uh, I think they were right on that particular case because you could make out the self and safety. In this particular case, you can make a very claim, strong claim that the life or the potential life of the fetus is something that is worthy of protection. There may even be claims to protect women against back alley abortions and so forth. So the health and safety issues are much stronger in the situation in Roe than they are in the situation of Lockman. And then just to confuse everybody, Harry Blackman goes and writes, a, takes a quotes a sentence from uh, uh, Holmes' famous dissent in Lawton saying the Constitution is made for people of wildly differing reviews. And what he thought that meant is that you don't impose your theory of laissez-faire on a legislature which is free to reject it. He now is quoting that sentence when he wants to impose a constitutional rule that will prevent people who widely disagree with one another from deciding the case. A point which was pointed out with some power uh, by Justice Rehnquist in his rather frustrating dissent in that case. So when you go look at this thing, there are two ways to think about this case. One of them is to think about abortion as violating the fundamental rights uh, of fetuses to live or even embryos to live after conception. And the other is to say the legislature should always decide this, not the courts. When you fast forward and listen to the case, what happens is the ambiguity constantly persists in the way in which the arguments go. So Mr. Stewart, when he starts out, constantly says that this is a matter for the people of the state to decide. And he doesn't give any normative argument about why it is that abortion is either good or bad. He gives no explanation, for example, why it is that so many states had actually decided to ban abortion before uh, 1868 and kept those bans in place all the way through Roe v. Wade. It's kind of a startling omission. So his attitude is, I don't have to explain to you why it's right. The legislature can do it. And then if it turned out the legislature passed a particular statute that gave very broad scope to abortion, he would have nothing that he could say against it. Somebody like myself, he's saying, look, I mean, if it turns out that there's a real powerful interest in this case, then legislatures are going to be constrained in order to protect that interest of the unborn child. And so you don't have that complete freedom. And you're going to have to ask, uh, can you have a ban against that rule of abortions? What about abortions needed to save the life of the mother? 
What about abortions of children who are known to be seriously defective and so forth? You're going to have to get into those kinds of discussions. So the court, in effect, listened to him. And you can see both of these arguments sort of resonating with some of the justices on his side. And for the most part, when he was speaking, they were asking him, tell us a little bit more questions. Then there was Justice Sotomayor. I mean, both guns blazing on every conceivable front. This was a, an assault which was ill-concealed. Um, she basically thought the right of a woman to choose was completely unambiguous. And then she has these rather bizarre discussions of the medical evidence, of which the most ghoulish was. We say, how do we know that a fetus has sensibility? And the example she gives, and I'll stop at this for the moment, was uh, you kill somebody or they're dead, and you basically stick a pin in their toe, and there'll be a reflux reaction. So it could be that when you started to talk about a fetus, which is rapidly emerging, you want to analogize it to a dead person, so that when you stick a pin in there, they don't feel anything, and so that you don't have to worry about the pain to the fetus kind of stuff. I mean, speaking about medical imaginations that she's putting forward, it just really sounds kind of ghoulish to do this stuff. And I think it's a mark of the desperation that she has. My guess is, therefore, listening to all of this stuff, is that she and Justice Breyer, who had endlessly torturous questions about the ambiguity of the history and so forth, um, and Justice Kagan, who, as always, is concerned about questions of overruling past decisions, uh, which she thinks is generally a mistake. Uh, I think if you listen to the debate, uh, the six conservative judges, if anything, were probably moved in the direction of Mr. Stewart by listening to the kinds of arguments that came up on the other side. This was not the day that the liberals would, in retrospect, call their finest out. I want to ask about this. The the responses from the from the like, liberal leaning justices is somewhat predictable. I think five out of the six conservative justices also, you know, we know where they're inclined to go. I want to know what you think about Justice Roberts. What side he might be leaning on i mean you you we've we've seen him make some unexpected rulings in the past the the aca case of mm-hmm. course is the most uh you know i think famous example of that do you think he is uh worried about the the political the pu- the public's reaction if they were to uh hold this law and and uh, you know i guess overturn Roe? look I, I think what happens is justice roberts has got it right he's worried about this case no matter which way it comes out um, the conservative indignation with respect to Roe v. Wade has reached a fever pitch in recent days. The liberal uh, approach has done exactly the same thing. So on the same day, Charles Street, still very strongly active at age 86 or so, he says it would be a ghastly dismantling of the entire system of our constitutional architecture to overview, overrule Roe. Now it turns out that if you kept something for 49 years or so, you really have to treat it as a vested right. The fact that it was a hundred some odd years in the other direction or summarily overruled doesn't move him. And then Ed Whalen, who always writes about this stuff, he says in the Wall Street Journal, you cannot possibly keep a decision which is so ill-formed and so utterly immoral on the books, taking, I think, more of a kind of a Catholic position on the morality of the behavior rather than an institutional competence kind of position. So, well, Richard, they, I mean, they made the argument. Ways. 
they made the argument in the case, right? This is this is akin to overturning Plessy versus Ferguson, right? That stood for almost what six decades or so, and then we got no, Ronald V. Right, Board. Fifty-eight years. Fifty-eight years, right? Yeah, and so th- the argument is, you know, right is right is right, wrong is wrong. But I mean, do you what what hurts the credibility of the court more? This is what people keep harping on on both sides, right? Yeah. If you write the right opinion, you may be able to mitigate the damages. I mean, Plessy is a, a very different kind of case, or similar in some way. Uh, First of all, with respect to Plessy, uh, when it first came through, most people don't realize it was not regarded as a particular big deal. Um, So ingrained was segregation in the South and to some extent in the North uh, that when it came to deciding the case, it was decided by a judge named Henry Brown, who was a Northerner. And I don't know if you know the opinion on which he arrived the most, but it was by one Lemuel Shaw, the chief justice and a great man of Massachusetts, in a case having to do with Robertson, the city of Boston, uh, refused to find any constitutional violation uh, by the imposition of segregation in the city of Boston. Uh, what was his motivation is up to debate, but my friend Andy Cole, when he wrote a book on the colorblind constitution, which I read many years ago, which is still a terrific book, he said, uh, Shaw understood that the Boston state legislature was going to outlaw segregation anyhow. And he thought that democratic legitimacy would be a straw way to get this thing through than for him to develop some kind of a theory. Uh, but when Brown wrote about this in 1896 and cites the case, he's not worried about the reaction of the Massachusetts state's legislature. What he's doing, he's enshrining this stuff in the system because now it turns out that the basic retreat from the slaughterhouse case and the reconstruction amendments, which were designed to ensure full parity amongst the races, particularly in areas of, of common carriers and public accommodation, it was all shattered um, by this particular decision. And the reaction was known, but nothing was done for at least 20 years. The NAACP formed 14 years later, around 1910. Uh, Woodrow Wilson separates the uh, civil service segregates it again in 1913 when he takes office. And not the best president, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, not my favorite president. I mean, he's also the guy in charge of the Red Scare. He's got a lot of things going on that are not admirable. <laughs> but again, it was not a big deal in terms of the political posture of the time. And it was thought to be so settled that the police power extended this broadly that the NAACP did not even bring suit. Uh, so the actual movement away from Ferguson, it's not 1954. Starting in about 1915, all of a sudden you see signs that this situation is falling under pressure. So that uh, the progressive nature of Wilson, which himself was largely a segregationist to some extent, uh, the grandfather clause was struck down in 1915 by the Supreme Court. That's a provision which says you can only vote if your grandfather voted. And of course, all black people had grandparents who were slaves, so none of them could vote. And they understood that this was a ruse. And then there was a case called Buchanan and Worley decided a couple of years later in which you wanted to create equal divisions by having blacks and whites on a checkerboard, black squares and white squares. And the Supreme Court struck that down and it was also a rigged case. And slowly what happens is the white primary cases come. Uh, those are cases which most people don't even remember today, in which it turned out the way you picked the representatives or the candidates for a Democratic or Republican Party, there was a private organization called the Jaybirds. They picked the nominee, and then the party ran them, and the Jaybirds were segregated. And so in Groby against Townsend, it was upheld. And then four years, no, eight years later or so, nine years later, in 1944, a case called Smith v. Albright ran the thing in the opposite direction. 
And what it said, in effect, is we're just changing this rule. Uh, these shadow organizations have to be treated as state organizations, and they can't explicitly segregate. And Justice Owen Roberts at the time said uh, it looked as though Grovian Townsend was a ticket for one ride and for one ride only. It became a very famous metaphor. Uh, but at this point, the movement just kept on going. So before Brown, you then get states involving the dormant commerce cause of all things. And they held that a segregation system in the South on a train that ran across state lines was a barrier to interstate commerce, which was blocked by the dormant, that is the passive use of the commerce cause. Then in 1950, you get a case called Sweat v. St. which said separate but equal doesn't mean that the state of Texas right, can put together some shambles of a fake law school for black students in order to keep them out of the highly uh, lucrative and elegant Texas law school. So when you get to, whatchamacallit, the overruling and Brown v. Board of Education, it's not a complete discontinuous, you know, discontinuous situation. There have been many, many signs that have taken place earlier on uh, that this is just not going to last. And then you get this opinion. And in the at the time, everybody thought the opinion was superficial. He didn't get the psychological evidence right, all of that. Now, you know, 70 years later almost, my reaction to Brown v. Board of Education was that Earl Warren knew exactly what he was doing. The more particularistic he got, the more loyally that he got, the more there would be for points of target one way or another. So he wrote this bland kind of demonstration to make it very hard for people to go after him. And indeed, the one thing that caused him trouble was the citations of the various studies having to do with the psychological preferences and predilections of black and white children in various kinds of learning environments. Because that's an empirical claim that you can fight about one way or the other. Uh, the broad banality is that, oh, that segregation has no place under the Equal Protection Clause. I mean, that's a stirring declaration. Technically, I suspect it's wrong, but nobody really cares then or now. And then the battle after Brown was how fast you go to implement it. Uh, Herbert Wexler in 1959 wrote a long and learned article about neutral principles, showing serious doubts in his mind that Brown was rightly decided, calling for more legislative action. When you look at the situation now with Roe v. Wade, there's a lot of talk going on one way or another. But what the conservatives have never been able to show is a set of decisions which have chipped away at the earlier decision in the way in which all the cases that I have mentioned chipped away at the situation as it developed um, after Plessy v. Ferguson. This is a complete discontinuity with the earlier law. And so somebody can say, look, it's okay to overrule in stages and then have the final kibosh. It's not over okay to do this on the other ground. The other situation is, with respect to Plessy v. Ferguson, well, was there a defense of segregation? And somebody could say, no, not true. I mean, do you remember who argued the case for uh, the South and Brown v. Board? I'm going to give you a little quiz. I, I don't. It was uh, the famous man, Davis, the Davis Polk lawyer. He was the solicitor general and early on, I forget his first name now, John W. Davis, right? He was a great man. He argued the steel seizure cases against the government two years before. He was probably one of the most prominent appellate advocates in the United States. If you were trying to talk about a position which was per se irrespectable, unrespectful, you could never get a man of that eminence to argue the case. And so, you know, you're trying to figure out what's going on. It's easy now to sort of treat this as a perfectly self-evident job. But at the time, seeing who was on the other side of this thing, hard. Now, it turns out, of course, uh, you 
argued on the other side was by Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. If you go back and you look at the cases that he had argued over the previous 20 years, it becomes quite clear to me that as good a justice as he was, and he was on many, many issues, his greatest contribution was as a lawyer. I mean, the cases that he took on almost single-handedly to transform American racial politics in those early years is the kind of, you know, achievement that, you know, deserves amazement, awe, and respect. I mean, the guy was really quite amazing um, in terms of what he did. And there's a movie out about him now having to do with one of his trials in Connecticut, which shows the kind of thing that he went through when he was actually trying to defend individual cases. So, I mean, hats off the third one. Uh, but we don't want to be too hasty about this. Now, I think if we now look at Roe, there's this following very difficult point, which I'd like to refer to. What's the sentiment on Roe publicly? Well, it's deeply divided. I think at this particular point, most Americans uh, regard abortion as immoral. And the reason they regard it as immoral is they accept some version of the fetus's life claim they don't want to treat, as some people have suggested from time to time, cut off a toenail, cut out a fetus, it's all the same. They just don't accept it. But of those two-thirds on that way, when it comes to whether or not you want to ban it, two-thirds of the people say no. They Two-thirds of the people in this country support Roe. So there's at least one-third of the population which says it's a moral decision, but it should be left to the mother and her advisors to decide. Right? So it's a very complicated landscape. And they're respectable opinions on both sides. There's no organization that defended segregation in 1954, which is comparable to the Catholic Church today. And you just can't say to somebody, oh, you really think that abortion or life begins at conception. Well, this is just bizarre. This is immoral. No, it turns out it's probably the best point that you can do it because it's the most continuous break in the cycle. And as everybody starts to say, what's viability? Nobody knows. Stewart constantly stressed the fact that it was a moving target. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor said, it's a target which is sufficiently stable for me. I don't want to move it any further than we do. So I do think it's like everything else. You know, you ask a simple question about an analogy, but if you actually go through the interim years, it turns out it's a much more complicated question. Uh, my guess is if you looked at Justice Roberts, you're asking the prediction, right? Yep. He was the guy who overruled Cora Korematsu, right? Now, most people don't remember who wrote Korematsu. Do you? I'm going to give you a quiz. I, I don't. As a, I mean, I really don't. It was Hugo Black. Great hmm. right? And he defended the decision until the day he died. And again, the same question. Who argued the case for the government? Who was on that brief? Well, one of the lawyers was um, Herb Wexler, one of the most distinguished lawyers of criminal procedure and administrative law in the mid-century. I mean, all of these things, they have strange resonances. A, a good piece of advice for every historian and lawyer is the first thing you look at when you see a case is the identification of the counsel for both sides. Because you get some incredible surprises. And when you realize that the people don't match up with your expectations of the case, and then you start to realize there may be something about the current morality that we don't quite understand. We may be right to reject the traditional views on this subject. And generally, I think that we are. But we're not going to be wise historically simply to ignore it. But you recall he overturned Korematsu. And the other thing he did when it came to a Obergefell, he wrote a scathing dissent saying that this is just all made up law. Well, I got to tell you, anybody who goes back and reads Harry Blackman's opinion, 
will come up with exactly the same conclusion. Whether you like it or not, it is a complete intellectual jumble uh, of half-truths, innuendo, general propositions of no sense whatsoever. So just to give you one thing, he says, you don't have to give the mother any protection on the kinds of procedures you could use in the first trimester. But when you get to the second trimester, you can then say, oh, she can't go to an unlicensed abortionist or something of this sort. Well, why is the protection engine weaker in the first trimester when things are actually in many ways more complicated than in the second one? Who knows? But he certainly doesn't explain it. He just kind of gives you the categories one way or another, which is why it was that when he divided the world into trimesters, people like my own colleague in Chicago at the time, Phil Perlin, he just looked around and he says, I don't understand what's going on in this particular case. And his reaction was very common to people who were on sort of on the liberal side of the agenda. What's happened to Roe is that somehow or other, by constant use, people have said that the argument seems stronger. I think the best case for doing this is that, look, we've done it this long. It turns out there's a divided consensus on this issue. And we don't want to overturn major decisions unless we think that the public is slowly behind it. But there's a complication here, and I'll just end on this note for the moment at least, which is New York State passed a statute already, extremely clever. It says if the Supreme Court should overturn Roe, we will by statute authorize our state to proceed under Roe's principles. So essentially they give it legislative legitimacy. And if you recall what I said, if that's all you need, they met the requirements of Mr. Stewart. Mississippi can go one way, New York can go another. If you make the moral argument, then you're going to have to face the question as to whether or not the state can authorize something which looks to be, quote, personhood, homicide, something other, feticide, who knows what it's called, and you have to face that question. So if it's just the institutional question, what will happen the day Roe is decided to be overturned, there will be at least 20 state legislatures that will introduce bills that are parallel to the New York bill. And that may not be a bad thing, because at that point, you get rid of the legitimacy questions, and you can separate it out from the moral debate. Richard, I can tell you're teaching this tomorrow in your class. Uh, I'm not letting you leave, though, without a prediction for how this is going to go. And I I do want you to give a quick sketch of, you you said, okay, 20 20 legislatures-ish will pass a, you know, we're, we're abiding by Roe. Does that mean that the other states are going to, what, can they ban abortion entirely? Are we going to go back to a situation where you can't get it in, in certain states? Well, I mean, the answer is no. Um, so you take the narrowest of the statutes. Generally speaking, you're allowed to commit an abortion in order to protect the life of a mother. Now, you know, this is obviously to some extent expandable. Uh, the usual cases are you need to have cancer treatment now which will completely maul the feces. If you delay six months for the baby to um, be born, the mother will die. Now, it turns out there are cases where women refuse treatment, have birth to their children, and then die. I mean, so it's not as though it doesn't happen. Uh, But there are many who will go in the opposite direction. You're going to have to face the question of whether or not if you have a child who's known to have some serious disorder, um, spina bifida, some uh, mental telepathy, the, the, there's water on the brain. There are a large number of these conditions, Tay-Sachs disease and so forth. Do you really have to give birth to a child to watch it die for the next three years? Uh, there's a very good measure on that. There are many, many women, particularly older women, often liberal women, and what they do is they try to get pregnant by very elaborate means. They get pregnant, and then what they discover is the doctor gives them the bad news. This is a Tay-Sachs baby. So the question is, how many of them choose to abort, given the fact that they're not doing this lightly, 
And the answer is well over 90%. So I just cannot conceive that a state legislature is going to pass a statute uh, which is going to prevent that. They may try to define the exception narrowly. There are also going to be cases, what do you do with abortion in the event of rape, forcible intercourse of one kind or another? And here, again, there are many women who will, in fact, have that child, exclude the father and raise it as their own. Uh, But there are others who just cannot wait to get an abortion um, in order to start their life fresh. I mean, so I do think that you will see very few states being categorical. And I think that one of the battles that will take place in the states that just don't adopt the Roe framework will be how broadly to define the exceptions. But I do think it will be a reasoned debate. Uh, I do not think it will be something which will say a total ban on abortion. Remember, even going back to the pre-Road area, there wasn't a single one of these abortion statutes that didn't have an exception for the life of the mother. Interestingly enough, other exceptions were not as well articulated. And I think in the Texas case, that was the only exception that was built into the law. That will not be the case uh, going forward. And so that's the way in which the legislature agenda will play out. And some people say, do we really want all this terrible uncertainty in order to get greater legitimacy? And the way I put the question, I think the answer should be very clear. Honest people can disagree about all of that. And so just on my own views, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm saying maybe limit row a little bit, but given prescription, you don't want to change it. Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I say, oh, my God, this is an intellectual shambles that cannot survive. And the other I do on Sunday, hmm. I rest. <laughs> well, Richard, you know, Charlie Cook called uh, Roe extra-legal nonsense, and I'm, I, I, I want to know what you think about that. And also, you didn't tell us. What, what is your prediction for the, the case? Are we going to get 5-4, 6-3? I think it's going to be 6-3. I think they're going to either overturn or severely limit Roe. I think what they are going to do is to uphold this particular Mississippi statute. Um, I think some will do it on the grounds of just a terrible precedent and we have no fidelity to it. Uh, That is going to be, I think, the position of Justice Thomas, who always said my first loyalty is to the Constitution. I think some of the other justices will do it because they take um, uh, a genuine dislike at the constant judicial effort to try and get the appropriate parameters, and they think that this is going to be an institutional nightmare, and that's kind of the elite position. Uh, There'll be some people who may be heavily influenced by Catholic theology, and they will take that as a position. Uh, Let's put it this way. Uh, There may well be six votes to do major damage to Roe, but I don't think there'll only be one opinion. Uh, There will be some concurrences that come out, and my guess is you'll probably see three separate dissents coming out, all emphasizing somewhat difficult situations. Uh, But if you want me to guess what's happening, I think the current Supreme Court is emboldened on this. And there's also another prediction. They're emboldened on other issues. So right now there's a case called the American Hospital Association, which is sitting there before the uh, United States Supreme Court. Uh, They're suing the Secretary of Health um, and Human Services, Oscar Barreca, whatever his name is, right? Um, And there's a pretty better than even chance Uh, that Chevron will either go the way of all flesh, even though it's the most important administrative law decision that's probably ever been issued, or be certainly modified. So uh, what you will see, in effect, is there are going to be not just one, but many kinds of situations in which the conservative majority is likely to move. They won't move in unison, but they will certainly reverse the direction. That is, when I was raised as a young cub, right, the liberal dominance of the um, Warren administration uh, term was thought to last forever. 
So then you get to Berg. And I don't know if you know this, but the first year of Berg's was further to the left than anything that Earl Warren had ever done. Hmm. Um, that's when you had Roe v. Wade, right? It wasn't the Warren court decision. And you, that's when you have Griggs against you, Duke Power. That's when you get Goldberg against Kelly. The list just goes on. You start reading these cases, you say, oh, my God, they really did push it. This starts to change when Bill Rehnquist gets on the court. Now you get fairly stuff, tough to sense. And then slowly you can kind of see the flavor moving in the opposite direction. So Chevron itself, by the way, was in fact something of a retreat. The earlier decisions uh, led in many cases by Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on the Court of Appeal for the District of Columbia. They had the following attitude. You pass a regulation and you think it's rational. We find that it doesn't do the right thing because there's one thing wrong with it. It doesn't sufficiently advance the environmental cause. We're going to strike it down. And so what happened in Chevron, they had this funny bubble regulation about when you measure pollution, do you teach each smokestack as separate or do you treat the whole plant as one facility? Uh, the liberals wanted each smokestack to be separate so they could have constant review every time you did an internal modification of the plant. Whereas the bubble meant that if you just changed the internal composition, but the total emissions from this plant were constant or less, you didn't have to fight any problem. And what Justice Stevens did is he gave discretion, but he overruled the decision, which said there was no discretion, you're just plain wrong. So in an odd sense, Chevron is the start to the move back, uh, but then it just continues to expand its scope. And I have to tell you, I mean, I'm all Chevroned out. That is, every time I'm arguing a case, most recently in court yesterday, uh, you hear the ghost of Christmas past, all sorts of claims about deference, meaning that courts should defer to administrators if they've done their homework, however hard it should be. So in my particular case, uh, the, one of the questions was quite simply, do we treat a sapling which will be planted five years from now and reach maturity um, 50 years from now as the equivalent of a tree that is cut down today, leaving a slag heap until the Obama Presidential Center is complete? And this, the Seventh Circuit had written a preliminary opinion saying, if they think that the saplings are equivalent to trees, who are we to disagree with them? And in oral argument, I was asked, why should I accept your opinion? So I looked and I said, it's not my opinion. We cited 20 things. And sure enough, what happens today? The mayor announces that in order to make Chicago a better system, to reduce crime, to control temperatures, we are now engaged in a major tree planting campaign, right? That's what the city is doing. But in this particular case, we're going to defer to an agency run by the city of Chicago, which is hand in glove with, guess what famous former president? It's not Donald Trump. That's my hint, okay? And so that's deference for you. And I just don't accept it. I don't accept it on questions of fact, on administrative order, on judicial interpretation. I think the traditional views are the correct ones. You recall I wrote a book um, called The Dubious Morality of the Modern Administrative State. I don't know if you're aware of that book, mm -hmm. which said that every effort to try to treat administrative agencies in this rather unique fashion is a date. What you do is you kind of think of an administrative agency as a trial court. When it makes small factual interpretations, you, you, know, you look at them. So if the question is, now, how many trees are cut down? You give them deference on the count, although even in my case, they actually make a lot of mistakes on that. But if you're trying to figure out whether or not this is a major environmental harm, at this point, you have to review it for at least substantial evidence. And then on questions of law, you go, they know.
That, to me, is the way you should be doing administrative law. And when it comes to the Constitution, we have a similar question. How much deference is there? And in this particular case, they gave no deference whatsoever to all these legislative determinations. And I think the institutionalists, like John Ely, said, what are you talking about? How can you, with one rather flimsy opinion, overturn the considered decision of 50 state legislatures which have taken the opposite view? And so a point which I haven't stressed thus far is there is a very powerful group of American constitutional theorists who essentially think that custom and prescription, long practice in a given direction, should be given great weight in the interpretation of provisions that are to some degree ambiguous. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.